Last session before lunch is on uh, financial reporting. Um, so while the panel comes up, um, I suppose I still remember the days when I was dealing with what was then ED4. And at that point it was called the creation of employment for actuaries and accountants bill. Um, so just by show of hands, who at the moment is directly involved in IFRA 17 work in terms of the guys in the room? Okay, I assume you guys are, but I hope you are. Um, again, sorry? Okay, so it's, a, it's about... Um, it's about, no, not even about sort of 15, 20% odd. Okay, so I suspect not as much creation of, of employment yet. Um, but uh, what we want to discuss today is, is not the, the ins and outs of the standard. I think we've had a lot of presentations all the way through the last couple of years in terms of what this thing called the CSM is, what it looks like. So what we rather did was just to get a panel of, of, of people together, some industry, some consulting, and to have a look at what the state of um, the readiness is and, and, and what the challenge is being faced. Um, some simple numbers. Um, it was one year to the day next Friday that the IFRS 17 standard was published and there are less than a thousand days to implement it. So you're about uh, a quarter of the way through your timeline. I hope you're ready for what you've, what you've got to do. But just quickly, just as a reminder, seeing as not everyone's involved in it, just a reminder of what it is. It's, a, it's the new reporting standard for financial contracts that the ISB has put in place. Other terminology that you may have remembered in, in years back would be IFRS 4 Phase 2, and it's to standardize the, the um, insurance accounting for insurance contracts um, to create a single unifying model uh, across the world, other than those territories like America that have opted out of being part of the world. Um, but they do have the World Series. Um, it covers predominantly, and this is why we get involved as heavily as we do, it covers the methodology for calculating liabilities and then the subsequent measurement of those liabilities and then working out what of those goes into the income statement. Importantly, and I usually say this when I, when I talk to, to clients and audiences like this, the word actuary, the word actuarial does not appear in the standard. Okay, so it's an accounting standard, but however, the, 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 the methodologies are of such an actual nature that, that we are critically involved in the production of the, of the numbers. Um, as I say, the objective is to produce relevant statements, and, and, and we'll ask the question of the panel now in terms of whether they think it's going to achieve that to make sure that the financial performance of insurance, of, of entities that write insurance contracts, um, can be compared. And the important uh, key steps in it are to make sure that there's a a common understanding of what is an insurance contract, that there's some element that limits the amount of cross-subsidy that exists between contracts when, when, uh, when reporting them, and then making sure that the balance sheet um, impact of the insurance contracts is recorded correctly, and therefore the, in the income statement impact uh, is recorded correctly as the, as the um, standard um, goes forward in time. Um, I think somewhere in our... Uh, um, our processes are, you know, I think there are some clients that are still in denial. Um, some people feel they are being stuffed, and then we are somewhere in between. So, panel today, um, so I'll start on my left. Um, Ronaldo Gabella uh, um, is uh, um, the IFRS 17 program lead in, uh, in Liberty. He uh, spent some time in a, in a consultancy as well. So, he's cut his teeth in uh, both consulting and industry, and is now responsible on the industry side for implementing IFRS 17 for Liberty. Uh, Tracy is the um, as an actual consultant with QED, actuaries and consultants, also now responsible for the IFRS 17 program. And she said earlier this morning, 
She, uh, she is the chief cook, bottle washer, and everything else in respect of, of FS17 for, uh, for QED, but focusing on, on both uh, South African and African clients. So I think there's some, some specific challenges um, for, for countries outside of South Africa in terms of implementation. Um, Jak Nimant um, is an actor at MMI, and he uh, actually resides in Cape Town, so thanks for coming up. Um, I know you were presenting FS17 to your actuarial committee on Tuesday. Um, and uh, so, so well experienced in, in that. Um, he also was in very involved in the insolvency to and SAM work uh, in MMI. Um, and then uh, uh, Michael Mierkotter, uh, uh, senior manager at uh, EY, also very involved in the life insurance side and obviously involved in the, the FN17 FN space. So I'm going to kick off from, from so let's start from, from current state, and I suppose the the best place to start is the last six years of, uh, of our lives, um, and that's the implementation of, of SAM. And so I'll start with, um, with um, uh, Yuck. And in terms of product classification, which I talked to as the first step that's, that's important, um, given that we've gone through product classification exercises for, for SAM, particularly things like contract boundaries, how much commonality is there and isn't there, and what are you finding in terms of having to look at it differently and potentially recalibrate some of the er elements of your models from a particularly, I think, uh, contract boundary perspective, uh, given the classification is not so much of an issue for Sam. Yeah, I think so, so on, on, on contract boundaries, um, I think a lot of the thinking around what is a contract boundary has really been helped by Sam. Um, so I think just introducing the concept and, and, and helping people to, to understand what, what is meant by a contract boundary and what is meant by a contract, I think that's, that's sort of the extent to which SAM was helpful. Um, unfortunately, SAM is a, is a solvency is a, is a solvency regulation, um, and in that case, you're looking at cash flows across the, the balance sheet. Whereas, if for 17 is quite specific on on measuring and valuing contract by contract. Um, so, the, the signif most significant challenge we're faced with at the moment is is, is, is sort of changes to uh, unbundling in terms of what components are grouped together um, and may not be grouped together or may not be separated. Um, and, and so I think that would be different to SAM. Um, I do think that's sort of a, that, that, that's probably an area of focus on, on product classification and, and SAM's not going to help you there. Mm. So if then we look at it, having looked at those contracts, Ronaldo, the SAM models have been built, as I say, we had six years to, to have a seriously good look at our models, make sure we were doing best estimate cash flows in the models. Mm -hmm. um, and as Jacques points out, SAM is there to make sure that, you know, that the balance sheet, um, in, um, balance sheet measurement mechanism to say, are you going to be around in the, over the next 20 years, as opposed to IFRS, which is saying how much have you earned over the next 20 years. What are the three or four key differences that you're finding between your uh, SAM modeling um, environment that you've got and the modeling that you're doing, and what IFRS 17 is actually asking, asking us to do? Okay, so I think, um, I mean, if you break it up, if you look at the different elements, you've obviously got your best estimate liability, your risk adjustment, and then your CSM. So we look at it in those three buckets. Um, from a best estimate liability, I'd say that the two key differences are around expenses. So I think um, directly attributable is a phrase which you know, sh sends shivers down people's spine in the room just because I don't think we've really grappled with what exactly that means or necessarily got stuck into the detail of, um, of how we're going to model that. So in the same world, um, you'd potentially model all of it, whereas now we're only allowed to model the directly attributable expenses. 
Um, so I think that's, that's quite a key difference that, that we are working through. The other big key difference is around reinsurance. So I think within SAM, um, your reinsurance contract boundary, and even the way that you would model reinsurance would very much follow the underlying contract, whereas in FR17, it has to be seen as, a, as an entirely separate contract, which may mean that it has um, a different contract boundary to the underlying contract that the reinsurance is covering, and obviously that can cause issues. Um, and then secondly, I think the big difference is around this, this notion of potentially, depending on your, the contra contractual agreements of your reinsurance arrangement, of needing to model the future, ex expected future new business of your underlying reinsurance contract, which is not something that historically we've, we've done before. Um, I think if you then move on to the, the, the risk adjustment, um, conceptually, you know, is it in line with the risk margin in SAM? There's, there's a lot of different approaches, but I guess that's also something where companies are going to have to decide, do we want to align it with our SAM risk margin methodology, or do we want to potentially move to something different? So there's, there's also a little complexities around there. Um, and then in terms of the contractual service margin, obviously something new which isn't in SAM, but I think the main, the main sort of difference there, coming up with your CSM at day north is pretty straightforward, but there's a lot of discussion around the coverage units and how exactly are we going to um, earn the CSM over the contract lifetime. So I know there's been lots of discussions internationally, debates about even potentially changing elements of the standard, but I think that's a, that's a key area where at least us as insurers have been looking at the possible different options and um, yeah, that's obviously going to be quite different to Sam. Okay. Um, and Michael, on, the, on something like transition, so, so one of the key things that needs to happen is that the opening balance sheet effectively reshapes the entire insurance balance sheet and you push that through equity. How much of the existing modeling environment can and can't be used given the, the methods that are allowed, the approximations that are needed, and the fact that you need data back to, let's call it 1960, to find that one poor policyholder who still has the um, old generation product on the balance sheet? So I think the, sort of the key part of the standard is around undue cost and effort. Um, so I mean, if we look through Appendix C, which is, um, if, we, if we break up, Part A sort of sets the scene, Part B sends more shivers, Part C stop, sort of gets people crying. Um, and, you know, obviously as we start looking at the full retrospective approach, I mean, effectively it says, you know, if you've got the wherewithal um, and you can make use of your existing modeling environment, um, and obviously undue cost and effort, sufficient data, et cetera, et cetera, then you can start making use of this. Then, sort of moving down the line, you've then got the choice between modified retrospective and transition. And obviously, the sort of the key place that we then enter into approximations is really around modified retrospective. Um, and the ultimate goal there is to get <coughs> as close to the full retrospective approach as possible. Now, in terms of the current modeling environment, that's obviously quite a deviation. Where there is sort of more of a, um, a syncing up with the current modeling environment is tying in with what they call the earliest date. So working from that point forwards um, and then applying um, the, the approximations around that point in retrospect at the end. And there are a number of simplifying criteria that the standard, or, or I guess the ISAB has allowed us to make use of in, in achieving that. Um, and then coming lastly to the fair value, that's obviously a dramatic simplification of, of the actual environment. And, that really leverages most of all of the existing um, sort of modeling environment that would be in place come 2021. Great, thanks. So we, we, we've got some, I suppose we've got some tools to work with um, and I think the, the benefit of having SAM as an existing chassis on which to build is, is highly advantageous. We, we do know that foreign, uh, some, some other countries that are only moving into a solvency type regime are having some big leaps to go from uh, the old um, net premium valuation methodology straight into this is, is, is going to hurt a lot. 
But I suppose you, you've, you've got that from, our, from what we have got. And I know that the statements that have been made over time is that what we're going to find is that the actuaries and the accountants are going to start working together and everyone's going to be seeing Kumbaya um, uh, every financial reporting period. Um, so it's early, early days in the journey. And, and, and Tracy, you're sort of coming in particularly into clients where you aren't in a, in a, in a bigger sort of an accounting framework. How are you finding that truism of you're going to have to play with the finance guys more, uh, more eloquently? Uh, panning out? Um, yeah, I, it's definitely, um, it's been a learning curve. Um, as I said, I, I am in an actuarial only firm, so I have it the extra pressure that I have had to learn to speak accounting um, in, so that I can communicate. Um, but I'm finding it, even with all the training sessions that, are, that we are doing with clients in the workshops as we start interacting, we, because the your financial statements are moving so much into more of an analysis of surplus type world where it's expected claims and experience adjustments. Um, we're, having, we're finding that we are needing to learn to speak each other's language a lot more. Um, so I don't think at this stage, I think it's probably too early to tell if companies are going to be changing their team structures um, and, and, and how those your financial statement teams actually look going forward. Um, but I do think that's going to be driven a large, um, in, in a large way by how you choose to house your system. So are you going to have more of the contractual service margin sitting at, at that group of insurance accounting level? Is that going to be sitting on your accounting ledger? Or are you going to be sitting it more in actuarial systems? Who owns those systems? Um, that's going to dictate how much each party needs to learn each other's language and, and how, how your teams are going to have to be structured. Um, but definitely you cannot get away with what we've had before where we only look at the liability as an actuary and it's like, well, there you go, accountants, here you go, here's my number, um, go do what you do best. Um, that no longer can apply your financial, if you're going to understand your financial um, statements, both your finance team and your senior management now actually need to really start understanding these concepts of analysis of surplus and what, what's actually going on um, to be able to have any idea as to how their balance sheet and their income statement um, is going to pr uh, progress going forward. So, so yeah, so Yuck, how are you finding that at the coal face when you're looking at your programs? How many people have you got from the actual community and how many from the finance community are in that hot box of, of trying to work out how to solve this problem, uh, well, probably what the problem is, and how to solve it, and, and how to run the business going forward. So at the moment, we're, I would say we're probably about 70% actuarial, um, and then the, the remainder mainly being finance, and um, IT only as and when needed. <laughs> <laughs> well, because actuaries can just build everything they need to. Oh, sort of. Um, yeah, no, not really. Um, I, I, I think it's it's important to start at, at a point. You know, I think if we um, if if um, I was telling a colleague of mine the other day, if we if we look at the challenge ahead, it, you'll just sort of keel over. You know, it's just too big to look at. Um, so you've got to take steps. Um, so we take steps in the area that we know um, we can progress on and progress in the right direction. Um, and once we've progressed, then we take. You know, the, then we take more people along. Um, I think where it would end up, um, I think it's probably also that type of mix. If you think about who's involved in the production of financial reports, um, I, I do think you'll end up with a multi, multidisciplinary team involved in, in financial reporting. 
So, so Ronaldo, you know, you, you're looking at it also from a, from a corporate perspective, and we've got you know, so the community here has got the modeling environment. We've done a whole lot of, sort of, whole lot of work in SAM. We've walked towards a lot of the elements of the, of the problem. If you look at the finance reporting community that you interact with, how are they responding to so let's have walk towards their problem and, and, and suppose they, they're concerned that the actions are taking over the income statement, but at the same time, are they walking towards the problem and say, well, we want to own the CSM to, to point to Tracy's point of, of where it might end up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think even just to add on to the first couple of points, I mean, I'm still a little bit weary that actually the IASBs just introduce every 17 to get actuaries and accountants to talk to one another. And once that's done, they'll just can the whole thing. Um, just to prove that we can actually work together. That's but, why um, it took so long. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, so I think, I wouldn't say that necessarily from a finance side, they, they're holding on to what they've, what they've had before. I think at the end of the day, like everyone's pointed out, you know, your income statement is moving more to call analysis or surplus type view. And I think the reality is you've got to look at it and say, you know, who's, who's best skilled to unpack this? What it might mean is that there'd be a lot more actuaries involved in the financial reporting space going forward. Um, and that's just the reality that, that we all are going to have to face. And, and there's certain upskilling that we are going to have to do um, in, order to, in order to be able to move into that, that world. So, so, so if you look at that, Michael, are we ready, I suppose, you know, are we ready to dust off our accounts 101 to do the necessary work that we need to do to provide what the FD wants as opposed to what the regulator wants? Yeah, I think it's a necessity, actually. Um, if, if we look at what we actually now are required to do, I mean, realistically, the actuaries now effectively own the top half of the income statement. Um, and to be able to communicate that across appropriately, we actually do need to be able to speak accounting fluently. Um, I mean, in a, in a previous life, I worked in, uh, in a CFO capacity, and the ability to speak both languages um, makes for a dramatically easier conversation when you're going to speak to an FD that tends, by and large, to come from an accounting-specific background. Um, and I think this is also within the evolution of the actuary. We're no longer living in sort of our, our dedicated silos looking at things. And the more integrated we get into businesses, the better the conversations we can have um, and the, the bigger the impact we can have. So, and I'll open this to anyone in terms of closing the section on, on, on the skills that, that actuaries need, is where are we right now in terms of being able to communicate to the CFO what it is going to mean for him, both from his process perspective, well, both from his process perspective, his controlling perspective, and his results perspective. So have we got a clear steer of what things like return on equity and earnings growth are going to look like, or are we still a bit of a way off in terms of what, um, what, is, what, what we've got in the remaining 1,000 days? So I'll throw it at Yuck first, because he's, he's, in, he's, in, he's in that space. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that, I think the simple answer is no. Um. But if I have to say more than that, um, <laughs> the, the, it, I, I, I think the, the, the journey is, I, I, just thinking about Michael's point as well, there's also not just the evolution of actuaries and accountants in financial reporting, there's also the evolution of management and, and the FD and who is responsible there. So I think that engagement, the, the earlier you can get that to sort of have them almost grappling with the same challenges that you are, that's, the earlier you get that, the, the better. In, in terms of, maybe just in terms of where we are uh, and, and um, you know, in, in our program in terms of those, let's say, more strategic challenges, um, I, I, I think we're, um, I wouldn't say we're scratching the surface, but uh, we've, we've definitely got some way to go to, un, to unpack um, uh, you know, where we ultimately want to end up in, in June 2020.
mm. when we're taking on those those balances. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say we're in a in a position where we'll sort of communicate those <laughs> those, those sort of balances. Um, if anything, it'll be ranges given the different type of options that are available to you. Tracy, your experience? Um, my experience is that most of the smaller companies have not even started. Um, so they're still grappling with, oh yeah, we've got this IFRA 17, okay, what does it actually say? So we are right at the basics with many of your junior clients. I mean, they've just got, in the South African clients, are like, right, we've just done Sam. Really? <laughs> What's this IFRA 17 all about? And I mean, if you go, I mean, I'm not sure if your question's coming later, but I mean, going into Africa, they're even further behind. So we're still having to train um, on what is a reserve, let alone, and that basic concept is not really there in many of the, 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 the management world and the, the, the stakeholders don't even understand that concept. So now having to now to retrain your accountants on the, this income statement and balance sheet, it's going to be a massive journey. Yeah. So yeah, so I think some observations always been presenting the income statement. So, so for those who, who haven't been unfamiliar with it, the top line of the income statement of an, of, of an insurance company is going to have release of this contractual service margin, which is a modeling item, the release of your risk adjustment, which think about as a reduction in your risk, mar your risk margin in SAM world, your expected claims and your expected expenses, i.e. stuff that you've pulled out of your modeling environment. That's your revenue line of your, income, of, of, of your insurance company. At which point the finance guy looks at it and goes, well, where are my numbers? And you go, well, your numbers come later. And, and that's the bit where they sort of lose it a bit. That they realize that they, they don't know enough about what actually is embedded in the products that they write um, because they're constructing their teams and their views on what premiums am I paying, what claims am I, or sorry, what premiums am I receiving, what claims am I paying, and how many assets have I got in, ter in terms of the, the transition. So there is a, there's a, there's this, this big you know, transition from, from that product orientation. So there's a whole lot of costs being incurred now, and a whole, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry, I just want to give yeah. one, one more point in on the, on the skills, yeah. um, and, and I think that's, that's maybe a place where some sort of pushed us in the opposite direction, was not helpful, in that we've got a whole generation of actuaries who've now sort of grown up with prospective models and everything is a discounted cash flow, and, you know, whereas the CSM is actually harks back to much earlier actuarial practice or North American methods, those type of things which people just don't use anymore. Um, so, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, so, so I do think um, in terms of actuarial uh, people and finance people involved in, in FS17, I think just maybe getting that mental shift that you're dealing with an animal that's not a traditional actuarial reserve in what people have learned over the past couple of years, I think that's mm. quite a, that'll be a challenge. That's mm -hmm. a, that is a challenge. So when you finish this, I'll bring Mr. Trans and Mr. War into the conversation around U.S. GAAP because there's some interesting observations that they've made to me over, over, over the last year. So we've now got a whole lot of costs being incurred. We're starting to see some costs coming through from a build perspective, and we're going to have to reconfigure our finance teams. Are we going to see the benefits that IFRS 17 is promising in terms of, of this better clarity, better consistency and potentially um, better granularity of information. Um, Ronaldo, from your perspective in terms of what you're seeing, what you're hearing and, and, and what you feel. Mm. Yes, I think um, consistency across, across companies. I mean, I know there's a lot of optionality within IFRS 17, or I say a lot, there's, there's some optionality and I think that, that leads people to think that, okay, well, that means that it's not going to be consistent. But the reality is it's going to result in a lot more consistency than currently exists under IFRS 4. So 
Um, you know, the mere notion of having to set up a CSM, how you roll forward that CSM, um, yes, how you earn it, there might be some flex, but, but the reality is that it's definitely going to bring companies closer together. Um, I think where, where, the, where the benefit will more come from is um, actually internally. It's the consistency between your, your solvency basis and your actual regulatory reporting basis um, to the extent that those are aligned. Maybe not exactly, but at least from a communication perspective up to your board. I think it will be a lot easier than what historically what we've had, where we've had you know, EV, um, current financial reporting, car. It's, it's just been a little bit all over the place. And at least with it being a little bit more aligned, it should be an easier message um, up to the board. So, so, yeah, do you see this as the demise of EV? Uh, no. Um, and why not? Sorry, I've, I've got the exam question. There's only one mark, and you can only one mark, yeah. mark question. No, no, so that, that explains many things as far as my exam results are concerned. So I think the obvious, the obvious answer is, um, is on contract boundaries. That uh, if you're 17 contracts, you know, grab the mic. If, sorry, if you're 17 contracts, wouldn't necessarily help us with with um, sort of placing in a, 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 an embedded value on on um, on contracts with sh um, short boundaries. Um, I think there's another there's another piece here, and that's on in, in product development. When we're looking at VNB and and product value of, over its life cycle, um, that F17 is a useful tool, but we it can't be the only tool. So that's sort of where, on, on which I base my current view to say no. Um, to the extent that EV becomes an internal measure as opposed to an externally published measure, I think that's probably a slightly different question. Um, there may be, there might definitely be a move to sort of less prominence in, in external reporting um, of, of um, embedded value. So, so you're still going to land up with additional metrics that you have to reconcile and the cost of producing those. But Michael, will the disclosures around IFRS 17, so if you think about the fact that you've got some optionality but a whole lot of disclosures around IFRS 17, do you think that there's enough information in that that can differentiate? So for example, a risk adjustment, you've got one line in the standard that says that you have to have one of these things and then you have to do a calibration and disclose on it. Is there enough information in that to then unwind the, the optionality, as uh, Ronald was pointing out in the, in the standard? Or is that just going to create more complexity for analysts to try and unpack? I don't think, I mean, if we look at what sort of the mandatory disclosures that are coming out of IFRS 17, I mean, there is some disclosure around the, sort of the, the methodologies that you've used for your discount rate. So in some places, yes. In other places, no. I mean, if we use the risk adjustment as a specific answer, uh, sort of example of um, something for comparability, the one area that the standard forces comparability is to show what the confidence interval is or the, the confidence level around that, um, that risk adjustment. So effectively, regardless of the method, it will, you, know, you are disclosing um, what that extra risk that you're adding on is. So is it a perfect um, disclosure of where the difference arises? Definitely not, but it, it does give some indication. So I think from an analyst's point of view, there, there will still be a lot of questions. Um, do the current financials, well, uh, will the future financial statements and disclosures give more insight? Probably. I mean, if we look at the current sort of, um, you know, the, sort of the, the major analysts in South Africa, there's a lot of focus on EV. Um, I think there will still be additional reporting requirements around, if we're going to equate EV to CSM, there'll probably need to be more information around, you know, how are these changes in the CSM being composed, you know, what's driving them. So I think if we take the vanilla um, statements that the, the standard's pushing forwards, 
there will probably need to be more put forward, um, at least from an analyst's point of view, to understand exactly what's going on. Okay. So, you know, so we've got a picture there that there's work being done. I think still a whole lot of understanding needs to come through. Um, Tracy, in her wisdom, put her hand up for what would be my last question to the panel before we open to the floor. And it's a big, a big bold question that says, what are the emerging big challenges with IFRA 17? Particularly if we look at the context of a global standard being deployed into massive multinational insurers, and I discovered um, earlier last month actually that European insurers can opt out of IFRS and go to their local gap. So small European insurers and, and certain UK insurers aren't going to even adopt this. But where you've got territories that universally adopt IFRS as their local gap, you now are stuck in that space. So Tracy, you were saying earlier that you've got you know clients that products don't support the current management structure and the um, you know, cash-based accounting. What are you What are you finding, and how do you think we're going to help them help clients solve those challenges? Um, yeah, I think I think the the biggest thing that we're seeing, especially in our consult consultancy, is like, is there an IFRS light? We, we we really want to comply, but we need to do so at at lower cost as possible, and especially on going in like the small companies or going into Africa where that skill level is just not there, and that understanding this level is just not there. How can you translate um, the huge complexity of what, what is required to what is actually necessary to make sure that your financial statements make sense? And that, for me, is the biggest challenge, is how do you, um, can you come up with even like a, a risk adjustment and express it as a percentage and come down to something that is meaningful, meets the, the intention that communi will communicate to users of financial statements, communicate to them what needs to be communicated, but at the same time actually give something that is practically useful given that there won't be information, there aren't the data systems, there, there isn't that sophistication in the market. And I think that's, yeah, so it's for us, um, I mean, mostly Africa is driven by, and, and your smaller insurance insurers is driven by consultants. So I think it's going to be up very much to the consultants to come up with something that, that works and is practical to apply. And actually, inside programs at the moment, Yak Ronaldo, what, if you sort of have to label, what is the big thing that you know, keeps you awake at night? other than all the other big things. What, what would you put on this, Ronaldo first? Yeah, well, the other night my wife said that I woke up saying CSM in my, in my sleep, so <laughs> <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably point number one. No, I, think, um, I think the main thing is, is really just around that data management and data storage. Um, not necessarily the storage of it, but I guess because of what the CSM forces you to do, it's just about how you're gonna go and track that, track it through the lifetime, how you're then gonna feed that through into your financial reporting. And I think it's not something that historically we've had to do as an insurance company. I mean, we've had to worry about one line item in essence. Um, but now having to sort of track all of those different CSM groups in the way that the standard wants you to, um, I think that's, that's probably some of the biggest challenges that our insurers are facing at the moment. And so coming up with the, the technology, the solutions around that um, is, is going to be key. Yeah? Yeah, over, over the tea time, Nicholas reminded me that, uh, you know, that the accounting policy choices we make now and what we do for transition will probably live with us for the rest of, well, my lifetime. Um, so that's quite scary. Um, and, and, in a, and in a way, you can be measured on to what extent you'd need to change that in the future or to what extent that's not really working out as a useful measurement approach. Um, so I think that just, made, that just sort of raises the stakes. Um, Maybe, maybe just sort of tying onto that is, is just the, 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 the breadth of what we need to tackle um, 
in this because it's you know I think that we start off with our focus of being financial reporting, making getting it right into financial statements. But um, you know if we think about product development and, and strategic choices, there's quite a lot of um, breadth across insurance company that where people actually really need to understand quite well, you know what do we mean by coverage unit and how. And, and, this, and the service cost. What do you use the risk adjustment for? I mean, Michael, you alluded to, to, um, to, 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 to sort of future profit speaking to the CSM, but it's actually the CSM plus the risk adjustment. Um, and, and just that market perception of what do you put in the risk adjustment? You know, those are all those type of things. So there are many things that keep me away. That keep me away. <laughs> Great. So we've got a few minutes. I want to throw it over, open to the floor. Um, I know, I think it was Ronaldo made the comment to me that uh, he's going to redirect questions straight to me, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> please direct comments to the, to the panel, um, and yeah, I'd interested to hear your views, um, if, you, uh, if you have any around, around that, and I invite, as I say, Giles and uh, Paul, because I think there's some interesting observations from the parallels of US GAAP that we haven't lived under, that when we engage with clients who do report under US GAAP, they come up with a very different view of what this is, and how they see it from a problem perspective. So. Invoke, inv invoke my rights as chair. Yeah, before I respond to that, I'd like to, um, I'm also on the board of Old uh, Mutual Kenya, and my frustration is that the financial guys there haven't got a clue, um, and I think somebody mentioned that, I think you mentioned, don't actually know what drives their, the profit, you know, what are the uh, profit drivers. I always made the point of getting the actuary to first give us his um, actual report on the analysis surface, why we made a loss, persisting losses, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I say to the accountant, now don't try and explain where profits come from. Just tell us, you know, premiums, assets, whatever. And I'm, I'm looking forward to a stage where you have one reporting that, in fact, even if the, it, it will be the actual we're doing the reporting for many, many years, there won't be this funny IFRS income statement that you then have to try and explain to the lay directors. Ignore that. What they actually said was the important thing. Just listen to the actual. Don't listen to the accountant. <laughs> You have to do it politely, of course, but, but at the end of the day, because you know, if, a, if an accountant doesn't understand where reserves come from and you've got it exactly nailed in the head, he can't explain the, the outcome. He'll just say um, the increase in actual reserves are more than yet last year, so, you know, 20% more than last year, and that's the explanation. <laughs> that's it. Um, but coming to the U.S. gap, so another question is what is going to happen to second-tier margins in this territory? You know, we're the only country in the world that's allowed discretionary second-tier margins to enter into our accounting basis. You know, it goes against all principles of accounting standards, and we were able to let it in 20 years ago, whatever. Um, have, have, have people started thinking what they're going to do with their favorite second-tier margins? Are you going to try and get it in there somehow or other as well? Can I jump in there? Um, so I can't, I, I think that's probably a little bit too close to proprietary information <laughs> um, in terms of what we'll do with second-tier margins exactly. In principle, you can say that they'll disappear, um, but there's an interesting question, for example, on the on the risk adjustment. Why did you have a second to margins to start off with? I'm not talking about zeroization here and there, or just an actual thumb. Like, you know, we, we, we've got a we've got a real reason to have a second to margin is because you believe there's some underlying risk there, um, and for me, there's, there's there's ample room in the standard to incorporate that in the risk adjustment. Just as, as, as an example, um, first and second and margins, as we currently know them today, probably disappear, just be replaced by, by the risk adjustment and, and the CSF. The risk adjustment is 
a, a lot more, more discretion, your own view, CSM is much more mechanical. Christian, in the back there. Quick one for you guys. Well, hopefully a quick one. Um, you talked about how there are some small and maybe medium insurers who haven't gotten started with IFRS 17. If I were hypothetically to find myself in a situation like that, <laughs> <laughs> and we're about to be going in and pitching in terms of project size, resources, um, support, what sort of uh, message would you be going in with? Uh, and, and thinking about the experience that we had in the UK with Solvency 2 out here with Sam, where people vastly overestimated in some cases and vastly underestimated in, in some cases. Any insights and guidance you can give, I think would be appreciated. Hypothetically. <laughs> so which of the three of us are running first? So <laughs> <laughs> no. Tracy, go for it. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, the short order is, um, yeah, um, consultants are obviously ahead of the game, so hence, which is the first one, three of us are, are running first. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, every, every consultancy does, does things differently, um, but it probably is the, the quick way of fast-forwarding at a relatively cheap, cheaper cost, is just figure out, um, for, for us, I'm speaking with my QED hat, I mean, our, our first few steps are understand the standard and do and understand the impact on your system so that you, you at least know where your gaps are to say, okay, this is what it actually means for all of our products, classify your products, where does it actually go, what, to what extent are we ready, are we not ready, um, where are those gaps, how do we, are our systems suitable to be able to, to plug those holes with just getting, getting a few programmers in, can we, can we solve it, or do we actually need to find another, another solution and what is out there? So the sooner you've at least done, done that step, understanding where you are, what you need to do, you can then move, move yourself forward from there. So for us, it's, I mean, our thing is always just get yourself to that point as quickly as possible to maximize the amount of time that you have to minimize that cost of implementation because you've got a bit longer and you're not needing to scramble and suddenly pay um, exorbitant prices because no one's available to help you or suddenly get resources had you just taken a little bit longer and had the, and to plan, you could have used your own internal resources um, and planned it over time without having to incur extra cost to scramble to get, get over the line at the, at the implementation date. Yeah, I think just building on Tracy's earlier point, I think one of the key things that we as the actual community need to do, given that we're owning a space that doesn't have our name attached to it, is learn how to speak accounting again. Mm -hmm. So if I look at it, we did at least, well, most of us did at least one year of accounting, some probably did more. The accountants we're dealing with have never done product modeling. So the bridge to, the bridge to, 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 to the gap to bridge for them is to actually learn the product and the model and projections and cash flows and discounting where our bridges do dust off our accounts 101 notes. And having done that, you get a lot more credibility with the accounting community to say, okay, we, we actually have a role to play here as opposed to, well, this is actually my standard and how do I actually, you know, how do I own it? So it's, so it's also that um, ability to, to, to get access into the accounting space and, and, and understand it in their, in their frameworks. Uh, oh, hi, thanks, thanks, Andrew. Um, so I've just got a couple of questions. So the first one is, obviously there's a lot of ambiguity in the standard and I mean, I think we've touched, or you guys have touched on that. Um, some of that ambiguity is deliberate. I mean, the standard deliberately mentions that and some of it maybe is uh, not so deliberate. Uh, maybe from the consulting side, are you currently seeing big differences in interpretation and maybe what areas are you seeing big differences in interpretation? 
Um, and do you expect convergence over time, or do you expect uh, do you expect analysts to be happy with uh, differences uh, as long as they're disclosed? Um, and then, so that's my first question. My second question is: so, I mean, we, you know, you potentially be getting to the stage now where we're beginning to discuss some of the impacts with uh, the impact of I seventeen with boards and things like that. Um, and I mean, Ronaldo touched on it. The risk of the ISAB, uh, the IASB changing stance, changing the standard, um, is that a real risk in your opinion? Um, and if there are to be changes, do you think, or where do you think that those changes would come through? Throw to Michael. So I, I think in terms of the interpretation aspects, um, and, and as you say, sort of the deliberate and uh, inadvertent ambiguity, um, there's. Particularly with the TRG panel that's now running in the UK, um, obviously you know there's the major insurers from the world, um, obviously the big four sitting there. So these are sort of some of the key topics that are being brought up by industry and um, the big four for discussion, and that is sort of driving some convergence. So to use a bit of an extreme example, I mean there was a lot of discussion around coverage units, mm -hmm. and the ISAB staff have come out and said, you know, you'll use maximum cover. It, that hasn't taken away the discussion, but it's definitely given some very direct sort of interpretation. Um, I mean, there obviously are some more nuanced items, but uh, and without getting into proprietary sort of information, you know, every business will have its own nuanced items that it needs to deal with, and and when tackling those within the standard, you know, dealing with auditors, dealing with um, consultants, to go sort of through the exercise of understanding, you know, does does our interpretation match um, what you're seeing in the market, and be sort of your engagements with the ISAB? So, yes, um, there is still sort of this. I don't even call it nebulous, but the, the universe of items that are still um, out for sort of distinct interpretation are narrowing quite quickly. And I think that's also vital for, for all of us in terms of actually getting forwards with our plans and implementing. Yeah, I think I was also going to highlight um, just that the TRG is, is bringing a, a, lot of, a lot of convergence um, in, in terms of thinking. And I think, I mean, we've had, we've had two meetings now, and I think just listening, listening in on the talks, if you can, I mean, they can be quite painful, um, but if you can put aside the day, um, I think the next one they're talking about two days because there's so much to discuss, and just they prepare the papers ahead of time. You can actually sign up for free. It's a webinar, you can just listen in, and it does actually, all the, the past papers and the summaries do help direct in trying to figure out um, because sometimes, I mean, you read the standard, it is written by accountants but need to be, needs to be understood by actuaries. And that's, I mean, I'm still learning new things just by, by attending the TRG. And it's like, oh, is that what they meant? Um, and it's then sort of like, ah, oh, and then things start clicking into, into, into practice. So that would be some advice, sort of like, if you have the time, um, set aside that they read those papers, they do direct. Um, and aim, aim you in the better direction as to what's actually intended and not what we think is intended. So, so we could sit here all afternoon and regale you on IFRS 17 down to the nth degree of detail, but I think you guys are wanting lunch. I think we've had a good three sessions up to now. So first of all, thanks very much to my panel. Um, I strongly want them in and I think they did a wonderful job. Thanks very much. Um, so lunch is now served outside. If you do want to sit down, there are chairs and tables on the, the terrace. Um, the soft drinks of the society's accounts. Uh, and please remember during that time to swap your parking tickets uh, with uh, Melanie. We will reconvene. I will steal back the five minutes that uh, Nicholas gave you. We'll reconvene at quarter past one. 
Um, the future of insurance will be in here, Peter Temple's discussion on the future of insurance, and the, the PHI topic will be next door, rooms one, two, and three. So once again, thanks very much, guys, um, and have a good lunch.